The AI Today podcast, produced by Cognolytica, cuts through the hype and noise to identify what is really happening now in the world of artificial intelligence. Learn about emerging AI trends, technologies, and use cases from Cognolytica analysts and guest experts. Hello, and welcome to the AI Today podcast. I'm your host, Kathleen Walsh. And I'm your host, Ronald Schmelzer. And if you are been listening to the AI Today podcast now, well, welcome back. This is our 180, 182 or 183 episodes. This is, this is quite, quite a few of episodes now going into our fourth year of AI Today uh, podcast. If you are listening to AI Today podcast for the first time, then really welcome. We want you to know that there are have been fantastic interviews with a lot of AI thought leaders, a lot of AI influencers. We've shared insights into the AI markets and what's happening with the technology. We've also spent some time with some great researchers and thought leaders like Ben Gertzel of SingularityNet and Colin Engel, founder of iRobot, and folks in the government and, and with end users and enterprises and companies like GlaxoSmithKline and Wells Fargo and organizations, state governments, foreign governments. It's been a really great set of interviews. And we encourage you to listen to our almost 200 episodes that we have recorded here at AI Today podcast that are pretty much on all the subject of what is actually happening on a with AI Today. So, um, you know, long story short, if you really want to understand how AI is being put into practice today and where it's heading, please make sure to subscribe to the AI Today podcast on your favorite podcast provider and listen to our hundreds of episodes. Yes, but we're so excited to have with us today Nir Barlev, the CEO at ClearML. So hi, Nir, and thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Kathleen. Hi, Ron. Uh, thank you guys for having me. Uh, honored to be on such a long-running, successful uh, podcast show. Yes. Well, we are excited to have you. We love all of our guests. So we'd like to start by first having you introduce yourself to our listeners and tell them a little bit about your background and your current role at ClearML. Sure. Um, so, um, my background uh, is, uh, you know, started as an engineer and worked on that uh, for about eight, nine years, uh, doing various things. This is way back in the uh, Stone Age on ERP systems and uh, um, financial systems when they had uh, these things called mainframes, even. Uh, so, way back. Um, and then, I basically um, uh, made a move uh, to some of the more product uh, and business roles and uh, moved from larger organizations to smaller startups and even startups. Uh, worked on Bluetooth when it just started uh, a couple of decades ago um, and other startups. And then um, went uh, to um, uh, business school, joined Wharton, and straight out of business school uh, during Google where I spent uh, a decade uh, doing a whole bunch of things. Um, actually joined Google at a really uh, interesting time right after um, I had uh, acquired uh, Android. And so I had an opportunity to sit on the, uh, and be part of the uh, mobile team when it really started and work on the strategy. Um, and, uh, you know, really see that, uh, you know, the revolution that smartphones have brought in be part of that uh, to some extent. Um, and that uh, changed our life. Um, and then I was asked to go and uh, basically uh, set up uh, Google's uh, Engineering Center in Tel Aviv, which is a 
pretty big sandwiches there. I think it's about a thousand people already. Um, and then took on uh, roles mostly uh, leading product teams um, for Google Europe, leading uh, um, Google Analytics, leading um, search advertising. Um, at the time, that was about a you know, $14 billion business. Uh, I think it's, it's uh, double, if not more, since. Um, and then ended up uh, as the general manager for um, um, an independent uh, business unit doing mobile payments. Um, and about five years ago, I started looking for uh, what's next. And I joined uh, two of my amazing uh, two of my amazing partners uh, to start a Lego AI, um, where we looked at um, how can we really help our organizations with uh, you know with this new thing called AI. And this is what I've been doing since. I'm uh, the founders and the CEO, um, and we're working to help our customers build uh, better products faster and more cost effectively. Well, fantastic. Well, I think that's that's what people want. They want better products, more cost effectively. So definitely, definitely keep doing that. And you know, I think that's one of the interesting things that um, you know that's happening this in this market. And, and by the way, for those that don't know, um, our friends here at, at ClearML and Near Barlev uh, presented at our machine learning lifecycle event conference that we ran live January twenty sixth through twenty eighth, twenty twenty one, and very well attended. And uh, we had some fantastic, you know, thousands of, of attendees and some fantastic presenters. We were really, really honored by the, the presenters that we had and the experts, including uh, our guests here near Barlev. So, you know, one of those things that we talked about there at the conference was this this area of, of dealing with machine learning from an operations perspective, right? And, um, you know, people may be familiar who may not be familiar with all these aspects of operations may have heard of DevOps and your developer operations. Maybe they've heard of ML ops or even model ops that some are calling it. And so I think, I think may, maybe can you provide for those that didn't attend uh, the conference in your session? And by the way, we encourage everybody to register even now the, the conference while you're hearing this is still live at ML lifecycleconf.com. You can register. All the sessions are available. You can view everything. You can interact. It's a really great experience. Um, but maybe as a preview for those who haven't had a chance to register, maybe you could talk to us about the overlap between DevOps and MLOps and you know maybe just perspectives on MLOps and DevOps for our listeners here. <coughs> Absolutely. And, and by the way, I second that. Um, it was a great conference um, and I had an opportunity to attend some of the sessions. Really great uh, speakers there. Um, so definitely, um, let's talk about MLOps. MLOps is um, it's an interesting term. It's it's um, it's been around for a couple of years, but uh, really for the past, in 2020 it became you know um, the industry coalesced around uh, what. It wants to um, mean by saying MLOps, and it's basically really now uh, addressing all the different um, organizations and tooling that are needed in order to ultimately um, develop and deliver uh, and maintain uh, machine learning and deep learning based solutions. Um, and so, <coughs> why do we need MLOps, and why do different than MLOps? I think. <coughs> That's the basic question. And the reason is, uh, let's go back and talk about the differences between what an AI-based software is and, and what uh, the standard software. Um, 
AI is basically um, you know leveraging algorithms uh, by training them using data to model predictions, right? And those predictions can be used to uh, predict what is uh, seen in an image, uh, or what the sales is, you know, what a sales forecast is going to look like, or who's most likely to upsell into something, or what's the weather going to be like. Um, you know, you can predict pretty much uh, anything if you have the data uh, to try to model it. Uh, but the point is that um, unlike regular software, you're actually using you're using data to create the software in the first place. And the way that you create it is by um, through a process that's very much a researching process, a trial and error, where the you know people who are called data scientists or research scientists try to figure out uh, you know what is the best way to leverage the data and uh, the algorithms to do a model that will provide the best predictions. And so it's not an engineering process; it's a researching process that uses data <coughs> as kind of like raw material. <coughs> I'm sorry. Um, so that's one big difference. The other thing is um, that uh, what emanates from that is several things. One, you're really dealing with a combination of uh, data, the models, um, and the code that wraps everything around. So you're dealing with three moving pieces, unlike regular software that actually deals with only code. The other thing is, um, because you need to train these models, like using data, you're doing that already during uh, the R&D stage. Um, and because training data requires um, super uh, expensive uh, and strong machines, uh, generally it will be uh, NVIDIA GPUs, and uh, a lot of data, you're dealing with remote execution on clusters from really early on, whereas in software development, uh, addressing clusters and orchestration and scheduling doesn't happen until deployment. Here, it already happens in research. On the sub side, uh, because uh, AI is based on uh, data that tries to model the world, and because it's a stochastic process, what happens is that unlike regular software, once a piece of uh, AI software is deployed, it starts degrading in performance. And the reason it starts degrading in performance is because the world is dynamic. It's ever-changing. And so... Uh, if you trained it based on the model of the world, that model is now constantly changing. And so by definition, AI software will degrade. The only question is how fast will it degrade? And so unlike regular software, with AI, you need to constantly uh, develop or retrain it just to maintain the status quo. Um, so that's create, that creates another um, difference between regular software and, and, and AI. So... Now we come to what is MLOps. So <laughs> DevOps usually is about the operations of software once in deployment and production. And it deals with, with those things. It um, you know, doesn't normally deal with uh, research and development stages. Whereas MLOps actually deals with you know, the operations of AI software, but those operations are already relevant during research. Uh, and then continuing to deployment. And so actually, in, to some extent, MLOps is, is more uh, relevant or throughout a longer life cycle of a, a piece of software. Uh, and then at the same time, it deals with the specifics of, of AI software. So for example, the need to continue to train models doesn't exist in regular software. That is something that MLOps deals with. Um, another example, 
with orchestration in traditional DevOps, you're basically dealing with a piece of software that's um, well-QA'd, well-tested. Uh, you can even think of it as a, uh, as a um, black box from the IT or DevOps uh, department's uh, perspective. And you just need to make sure that it can run uh, and address the load uh, at any given time, right? So you scale it up, you scale it down based on the load, but it's a long-running uh, piece of software. It can run for months or even longer before a new version comes in uh, and replaces it. Whereas in MLOps, you're dealing with lots of experiments, like uh, doing research, but also in deployment. You may have lots of models running, and these models change all the time because they're retrained. We have lots of pieces of software, unlike one big one. Uh, oftentimes, these models are input uh, to another model. So you may have a piece of software that's running that actually will input uh, a, an important prediction into a model that will then use that to do the ultimate prediction. And so these cannot can no longer be addressed as black boxes. They're actually uh, integrated pipelines. Um, and so then scheduling, building pipelines, orchestration becomes a very different problem uh, when you're dealing with uh, machine learning or deep learning. And so at a high level, that's, you know, those are the differences uh, between MLOps and DevOps. Um, you'd say on one hand, it's a subset of DevOps specific for, for uh, AI. On the other hand, it actually is, uh, um, you know, wider encompassing. Great. You know, thank you for that overview. I think that a lot of people, you know, continue to are, are learning about MLOps, how that fits into their organization and how that kind of fits into the whole ecosystem. But how do you see MLOps fitting into the overall machine learning ecosystem? And how do you see it evolving over the next few years? Um. So I think to to answer this question, I, I actually want to take a um, um, kind of like a historical perspective. It's not going to be long; it's it's a few years. But um, I think that um, when you know machine learning, deep learning started picking up, uh, it's been about five years at most, right? Um, um, basically, initially, companies, um, you know, for good reasons, uh, were very naive about uh, what they need to be able to. Um, integrate AI, uh, machine learning into um, their you know ecosystem uh, in the organization, um, and literally you saw companies that would go and would hire data scientists and thought that um, you know you you put in input data scientist output great model, right? That you can put into production. Uh, well, you know that uh, fell flat on the face, right? Uh, for for a lot of reasons, and it, it fell flat because data scientists are inherently not engineers. Um, data scientists aren't trained to deliver a working stable product, right? They're trained to build uh, a model using research, but then that model needs to be taken and integrated into a product, uh, and that's an engineering um, exercise. And so that friction between engineering and research and understanding that data scientists cannot on their own deliver product is an issue. The other thing, obviously, uh, was that those, you know, the way to work uh, and actually deliver requires different methodologies. It required actually restructuring the organization. Um, and it required uh, adding new tools. So we talked a little bit about, you know, the tools when we talked about MLOps. Um, 
But um, when we think about uh, organizational issues, for example, right? If you want to be able to deliver high-quality machine learning solutions, you need access to data. Um, and so you need to be able to provide data from everywhere in the organization and oftentimes from outside the organization so that the data scientists can take that and build the correct models. The indicators that you might want to use to be able to predict something could be coming from many, many places. And actually, um, with AI, you want to be able to take them from as many places as you can. Um, so even just restructuring the organization to address that um, and, you know, who owns that? Who owns collecting the information? Um, if you now need to collect information to do some predictions for sales, but you need data from some operational or accounting database, uh, who owns that process? Um, you know, so that has become an issue as well. And then, obviously, the tooling uh, to fit everything together. I think that uh, what we're going to see now is that <clears throat> You know, organizations, I think, are pretty far along now in terms of, you know, building initial models and research. Uh, I think uh, a lot of organizations are, are making a great headway into coalescing uh, the data to make them available. And it's really now about um, providing the tools so that these processes can now become uh, productive uh, and provide, obviously, um, positive ROI. Uh, you know, just one aspect that we talked about before, maintaining models is uh, means that you need to continue training. It means that the cost of a piece of software that's AI is higher than, you know, your um, comparable based on regular, um, you know, software. Because just maintaining that uh, piece of software costs money. It costs money in tooling. It costs money in, 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 in compute power. It costs money to someone to actually uh, maintain that uh, that uh, process going. Uh, all those things don't uh, exist to that extent in regular software. And so, actually, I would say that uh, for AI, because the cost is higher, obviously, the value needs to be higher enough to justify that. Uh, MLOps tools provide the way um, to significantly decrease those costs by automating these processes, uh, enabling you to also monitor and understand the value that you're getting. And so they're going to become a critical piece in the ML ecosystem. I think this is really, and we're seeing that uh, you know, in our industry where we're operating, it, it, it's exploding. And the reason for that is that the, the understanding is that without MLOps, um, the ML ecosystem as a whole is not, you know, it, it, it's stuck. Yeah, I think I think that is really, you know, key insight. I think people are still working on best practices, you know, still trying to understand uh sort of like the flow of machine learning and as you know, even data science for many organizations is is a, is a new expertise area. So it's really interesting the how everything's going to be evolving over time and we definitely are expect this is sort of we're we're in the heyday right now of of machine learning applications and tools and technology and and uh, and you know just in general knowledge of how to do all this sort of stuff, you know that kind of leads into my next question, which is you know organizations that are sort of like you know may have some really great ideas and you know want to use machine learning and AI to solve all sorts of problems, you know, uh, run into some roadblocks, right? So maybe maybe you could share with us you know some of the challenges that you've seen you know companies face as they try to take these machine learning models and that they've developed and put them in production and probably run against run up against some realities in the real world, right? 
Absolutely. Um, just a little bit about this uh, in the prior question. I think that um, the challenges um, are on several dimensions. So I think the first one is um, an understanding that AI requires, um, you know, different integrating different skill sets, right? Mainly data scientists, integrating different workflows and methodologies, um, and actually. Uh, integrating uh, data scientists together with a larger product team that includes, uh, you know, your engineers and your product managers, et cetera, and, and making sure that they can all work together. That is an organizational challenge that ultimately starts at the leadership level, right? Creating the right organizational structure and giving the right people the mandate to be able to build these teams um, and to create the right processes to work. Um, and that has been, you know, one um, challenge that we've seen over and over again. Um, the other thing, another challenge that we've seen is that um, because data data science again is is a science, it's a research project. So a lot of times, scientists tend to work um, on, you know, various experiments. They tend to um, shy away from teams and work individually, and so. Uh, obviously, as you know, anyone who comes from an engineering background knows that uh, you actually want uh, teamwork, <laughs> not just in the engineering background, right? Um, and so the uh, prospect of how to get uh, collaboration, how to get uh, your research, you know, within a given research team, and even between research teams within an organization, um, the same set of structure uh, methodologies and so that you can share information and you can share best practices. And oftentimes, again, because we talked about AI being really data hungry and and, and uh, you, you never know when you want those indicators to come in to help you figure out uh, something, you want to, to have that sharing uh, on the data level, on the model level, um, insights level, et cetera. And so to do that, uh, you need to have the right tools that um, create, uh, facilitate the ability to share, and obviously um, the workflows uh, that allow that as well. Uh, so that's another challenge that we've seen. Um, another one, um, you know, has to do with the tools, which is what we've talked about mostly here. Uh, again, most uh, most companies, um, you know, are, are struggling, and, and actually, it's interesting to see that um, even early adopters are struggling because. Um, uh, what we've seen with early adopters is that, um, you know, three, four, five years ago, the tools that, uh, um, you know, ClearNow provides now that are much more mature and joining the whole MLOps industry, uh, you know, didn't really exist or, or, you know, we were building their infancy and people didn't know about them. And so they just went ahead and had to build their own tools. Uh, now, um, as in any profession, you, you need to be an expert in what you're doing. And and building an MLOps tool is, is not simple. You need to understand both the research and the engineering. And you need to become an expert at that. And so organizations that, uh, you know, whether it's a bank or it's a, uh, you know, um, um, retailer or, or, or even a high-tech company that's doing, you know, something else, uh, but not AI or MLOps as its core product, uh, needed to allocate uh, resources to build something that's out of its core product, out of its core capabilities. Uh, and those tools, um, you know, weren't best in class. Uh, and so what happened was that if you actually look at organizations that are, um, 
uh, you know, even early adopters, you'll see that they have a hodgepodge of tools. Um, you know, some self-built, some fit together with some, you know, early MLOps tools, etc. Um, and you know, now they have a problem with how to make that work really well um, and scale. The ones who aren't early adopters um, are relying on manual work, and even if they have a really strong research team or data science team, uh, if they have a model, uh, taking that model into production, there's a huge gap. And we need to build the whole infrastructure around that to support the uh, what we call in our space pipelines, right? the, the things that actually kind of like move the data into the models, both for training as well as what we call inference, which is when the model actually does predictions in, the, in, in deployment. Um, we need to be able to deploy the model at some point where you can actually go and access it. We need to monitor that model again to, to identify if, if it's you know when and how fast it's it's um, uh, degrading, or if it's having outliers in performance. Uh, all those things don't exist, and so these companies are now uh, facing those challenges. <clears throat> so I think that uh, you know. Apart from, you know, the Googles of the world and Uber and Netflix and, you know, there's really a uh, very small percentage of um, high-tech uh, giants um, that have uh, had the res- both the resources and talent to build these tools themselves at a high-quality level. Pretty much everyone else uh, is dealing with these um, issues, uh, putting models into production. Um, and, you know, that, that's where we come to help. That's great. You know, and it's nice to hear how other people, you know, challenges that you've seen, maybe some listeners can resonate with that and say, okay, you know, yes, these are pain points for me. So this has been um, a great podcast. And we always like to talk about this ML ops space and kind of how everything fits into the machine learning lifecycle and the whole ecosystem, which is why we had an event around it. So um, I know that many people from our podcast, many listeners do attend our virtual events. So thank you for that. And if you did not get a chance to check out all the sessions, like we mentioned earlier, they're still up. So go to machine, the Machine Learning Lifecycle Conference website and you can get to that, mllifecycleconf.com. Now, Nir, I'd like to wrap up this podcast with asking a question that we ask at all of our podcasts because we always set, get such a nice, uh, broad and diverse uh, answer from everybody. As a final note, what do you believe the future of AI is in general and its application to organizations and beyond? Um, so obviously, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in AI. I, otherwise, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, I think that um, again, if you look historically, right, of big data, even before AI, big data had a, a huge impact on you know what organizations could deliver. Uh, in terms of everything, right? In terms of uh, higher quality products and services, of being able to uh, uh, to um, improve their processes by really understanding the data um, that they're turning and collecting, and using that to to improve AI, right? Basically, revolutionized that by taking that to a whole new level, right? Because now we can look at humongous amounts, literally unlimited amounts of data, and try to you know understand patterns around that that can help us <clears throat> uh, understand the world around us and what better decisions to make. And, you know, those better decisions that we can make encompass uh, pretty much every industry that I can think of and almost every aspect of our lives. 
Um, I, I literally cannot think of any aspect of our lives that cannot be improved uh, with AI, <clears throat> and including also some aspects which um, you know um, I don't want improved, like uh, whether it's uh, um, <clears throat> you know there are opportunities to do evil with with AI as well. Uh, but putting that aside, uh, AI uh, with its amazing ability to help us better understand. Um, Patterns uh, will help us uh, make better decisions across any aspect of our lives, and that's only going to continue to grow. Um, I think that if you, you know, we're only only at the beginning. Um, obviously, um, you know, we hear a lot about that uh, in media, and we see again going back to some of the companies like Google, etc., and Facebook, and these companies that are already deploying AI really well. Um, within the next several years, um, you know. Five to ten years, you're going to see pretty much every single organization in the world uh, using AI, whether it was developed specifically for them or whether they're using a product uh, that has AI integrated into it. Um, and that's going to, I think, uh, improve every, almost every aspect of our lives. Um, and um, you know, so that revolution is is going to happen, and we're only at the beginning. At the same time, if you want to take even a you know a scientific approach. Um, Actually, you know, I've, I've, I've read a couple of papers talking about the fact that, you know, AI, um, the core concepts of AI actually haven't changed for, for 40 years, right? So AI burst into the scene once we had enough processing power to use it, and that was about five years ago. Uh, but, you know, the science has been there for, for a couple of decades already. And... Um, some of the researchers, if you think, if you look at academia, are saying, well, I'm not seeing any revolution, um, <clears throat> which is interesting. I actually think that, that's, that's true, and that most of the research, the core cool research that we're seeing around AI today is about, you know, improving methodologies, improving heuristics, uh, making changes, but not something revolutionary. Um, so I think that's, you know, I think that's an interesting note to, to be aware of. That said, I'm not worried because, um, you know, improving heuristics, improving methodologies uh, can have huge, huge uh, um, upside effects. Uh, take, um, you know, take um, compute power, Moore's Law, right? Uh, um, it's been around and it, it was working for decades, like the, the fact that um, every year um, the processing power doubles. Um, and most of those decades weren't any revolutions in, in basically how you run uh, basic compute. Nonetheless, um, based on just improving, you know, improving the chipsets and, and improving methodologies, uh, people were able to get uh, 2x every year. Same thing, I think, with AI. Uh, the fact, first of all, you know, the, the chipsets that are running this are going to get uh, uh, stronger and stronger uh, and better. Um, and so for some memory and then access to more data, and the methodologies, and those alone are going to propel uh, the field and, and you know, make um, uh, things that, uh, you know, if you think about BERT, which is a relatively uh, new model uh, to understand language model, and it has billions, literally billions of nodes. Right? Uh, today, only uh, companies uh, at the size of Google can actually run it completely. Uh, but five years down the line, uh, many more are going to be able to use that. Um, and 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 the revolutions are going to come, but even without them, uh, we're going to see uh, amazing developments in the next decade. 
Well, we, we clearly feel the same way, <laughs> because that's why we are focusing here on AI today, and we continue to, to run conferences, and we do our market research and market intelligence on the space, and we talk to customers. And, you know, honestly, we talk to customers all the time, end users, implementers across every industry, across, you know, public sector, private sector. No one is slowing down or stopping their AI initiatives. You know, we've seen research out there from other analyst firms that talk about, you know, uh, failure rates. And, you know, honestly, a lot of them are really missing the mark because a lot of AI is really hidden. It's like a lot of the, what I mean, true AI, machine learning, you know, this is not like fake AI. This is real AI, you know, happening with real machine learning applications. You just don't see a lot of it because it's in the background doing things like predictive analytics and pattern recognition and anomaly detection and conversational systems recognition, you know, all the different applications of AI, hyper-personalization and autonomous systems of all sorts. And, you know, that's the way that was really enabled by machine learning and deriving our functionality, as you put it, near very well, you know, deriving functionality, driving the program from the data, you know, using data to learn from that data and create these uh, powerful things that we see every day. And you're right, you know, we make these inc these uh, developments incrementally and we have the processing power and the data to do that. And, you know, that's what's making all this work. And that's why, you know, we're 180 some odd episodes into this and nothing has slowed down or stopped. We are not running out of any sort of information anytime soon to share with our listeners. So, Nir, I just want to thank you so much, you know, for joining us here on the podcast. We really enjoyed having you as a guest. And we know that our listeners really have gotten a lot of value listening to what you have to say. Well, Catherine, thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Uh, I enjoyed it, and really thank you uh, for having me. And uh, I completely agree. If it's not slowing down, it's, if only it's getting even faster. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, if you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, please make sure to rate us on iTunes, Google, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. As always, we'll post any articles and concepts discussed in the show notes. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you at the next podcast. And that's a wrap for today. To download this episode, find additional episodes and transcripts, subscribe to our newsletter and more, please visit our website at Cognolitica.com. Join the discussion in between podcasts on the AI Today Facebook group and make sure to join the Cognolitica Facebook page for updates on this and future podcasts. Also subscribe to our podcast in iTunes, Google Play and elsewhere to get notified of future episodes. Want to support this podcast and get your message out to our listeners? Then become a sponsor. We offer significant benefits for AI Today sponsors, including promotion in the podcast and landing page, and opportunities to be a guest on the AI Today show. For more information on sponsorship, visit the Cognolytica website and click on the podcast link. This sound recording and its contents is copyright by Cognolytica. All rights reserved. Music by Matsu Gravas. As always, thanks for listening to AI Today, and we'll catch you at the next podcast.